beautiful Spanish music here for a Saturday afternoon with Jim Hammond and, wow, our new co-host there, Eric, jumping in. Hello. He loves this particular show, and we love having him right here. Gentlemen, good evening. How are you? We're good. Doing great. How's it going? How about that? Uh, your, your your mic's a little low there. We'll, uh, we'll come in now? and adjust it. It, it sounds right. a little up. There we go. Maybe, right. maybe a little bit uh, more right there. Uh, this this afternoon, this evening, we've got some Spanish wine we're going to be sampling, right, Jim? More oh, Spanish of course. Wine. Yes. Yeah, yeah, we we did the whites last week, and of course that means we have to do the reds this week. Well, it doesn't mean we have to, but we are because we love the Spanish reds, and um, they are still one of the better buys you can get. Uh, the The wine we're we're doing here is uh, Baron de Levy Reserva, two thousand sixteen. So it's a good. Five years age on it, so it's uh, it's starting to mellow out. Although it's got a long way to go still, and uh, again, twenty bills for a wine of that quality. If you get that anywhere else, uh, you're going to be paying a lot more. So it's still a great value uh, place for for getting wine because we we know there's there's more vineyards planted in Spain than anywhere else in the world. So obviously the Spanish love their wine, and you can tell it from the the quality of the wines that they put out. So uh, what we're going to do is just overview quickly the uh, Spain, just, just so we can make sure you're properly situated in it. Um, and uh, from, from there, we'll just dig into the Rioja area, La Rioja, which is the first area that I actually uh, sampled wines that I can recall. And boy, after the first one. So I, I, I found the reservas at that time when I was staying at the Casa del Sol were about Oh, ten to twelve dollars. Uh, so I tried one of those. I said, "Wow, this is really good." And I said, "Well, the Grand Reserves were only about fifteen then." I said, "Well, let's try a couple of these." Uh, I enjoyed those even more. So uh, the 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 week that we were that my wife and I were staying in Spain, we drank a heck of a lot of uh, Spanish wine, and I think most of it was probably Rioja based. So that was the first one I had some real appreciation of, and and that appreciation continues because they still do quality stuff. In fact, there's a lot of rule changes and things that they've done there uh, to really reinforce the, the, the quality issues, including implementing things that uh, you would think would only be done in France, uh, like identifying individual vineyards and vineyard sites and, and identifying quality issues all along the way. So that basically means that, that you're going to be able to get some really exquisite wines uh, that will be probably less expensive than anywhere else you can get them right now. So the um, 60 defined wine areas, seven uh, distinct climates, okay? Big country, obviously, it's got, on the, on the north end, you've got the Atlantic uh, that hits a fair amount of it, including the Rioja area. Well, it's about 40 miles from uh, where the Rioja area starts. And then uh, all the way across, the, and, and then you're right on the border with France. And then you've got the huge Mediterranean area, which also occupies a lot of the coastline of Spain. So obviously those are going to be big influences. The fact there's a lot of mountainous regions there is an influence. The uh, rivers, uh, the Ebro River, um, Ebro, uh, I'm not sure exactly, E-B-R-O. I mean, you know. That sounds right to me. Ebro, yeah. yeah either, so it, that works. And uh, that has been a big influence on wines we tried before. Uh, so it actually starts right out there at Atlantic and goes down through uh, the Rioja area and then get, goes through Navarra and Argonne. And the, the, the Argonne area is, is the area that we sampled a wonderful white from. And we mentioned then the fact that the that river cuts channels and valleys everywhere it goes all the way out to where it comes out on the meds so just amazing the second largest river in in spain and obviously a dramatic influence on on every kind of uh, agriculture you can think not just grapes so um that's the, the the northwest area then is the area one of the areas we explored this last time and that was for the wonderful Albarino white wines uh fabulous grape that grows in both Portugal and Spain. And uh, predominantly, uh, just because it seems to love the Atlantic coast, it grows in the Rios Baixas area, which is a, a distinctive area. In fact, the, the the wine we had that time, the uh, 
Martin Codax was in an area of the Val de, de Sané, which is right. <laughs> there's the, the, the vineyards are basically looking out over the cliffs on the, at the Atlantic. So bit, very obvious maritime influence on, on those. So there are some one uh, red wines grown there, but usually more inland, as you would imagine, because that, that uh, you, you need a, a longer growing season. And so that's, part, that's probably where they're going to do that. Then you had the, the northeast, and this is where we're going to be here. And, of course, this is the, the area that includes the La Rioja, Navarra, and Aragon, as I just mentioned. And then uh, continuing all the way across from there down to Catalonia, uh, which is the, the main red wine there, of course, is Priorat. But they have a lot of really good red wines uh, in the area surrounding where the Priorat is. That's just a, a, a well-identified area and a high-quality area, as w- when we mentioned that. And... Uh, the, the basic grapes that we're looking at here, the Tem- Tempranillo is the big one, obviously. That is the most planted red wine grape. Garnacha is not a really popular one. Uh, in the northwest part, you won't see that much. Uh, but in the northeast, you'll see the Tempranillo, the Garnacha, the Carignan, uh, also known as the Mazuelo grape, and also known as... So it's got a, a number of different names for it. The thing is, very much like in, in Italy... They'll name the same grape, the same DNA-type uh, grape, something different because it's growing in a different area that's going to influence it. And if it's been growing there for hundreds of years, trust me, friends, it is a totally different grape. And so they acknowledging that, they identify a different name for them. And, of course, then, then you get into the – and, of course, you also have the, the um, grape varieties from other areas, uh, pr- pr- principally France, and that would be the – Cabernet Sauvignons and the and the Syrahs and the Merlots and uh, the the other one that they do there the two other ones they do that are that are native one is the Monastrel um, and it's in Spain you'll typically hear it spelled as Monastrel but in France it's called the Mouvedre grape which is part of the GSM blends we talked about in the Rhone area so this is uh, so basically the Grenache and the Syrah are two principal grapes that are also grow very well in Spain. In fact, the the uh, Grenache or the Grenache, as it's known locally, is pr- pretty much evolved from there and then migrated up to France. And the other one that I wanted to try, and they actually have one hundred uh, one 75% Bobal wine, and that's uh, an area you're going to get in the southern part. And uh, that's another intriguing grape that I haven't tried yet. Uh, that's supposed to be also... A lot of these these grapes, they 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 start out. They say, "Oh, we can really grow a lot of this grape. So let's grow a lot of this grape, and and we'll just make some eh, wine." You know, uh, it seems like we could probably spend a whole year just on the Spanish grapes, huh? Oh yeah, oh absolutely. And uh, so the, but when when people are identifying with quality, and one of the the spurs for that is is not usually local consumption, but global consumption. And when there's a market out there, then people will realize that, well, to compete in a market, we have to have better quality. And some of the spur for that is the individual winemakers. Some of it is the regulatory groups in the, the various countries of, of Europe, since that's one of the big deals they have there. In fact, that's one of the reasons we mentioned the various classifications or quality classifications, because they're very important to know, and they give you an, uh, an idea of what you can expect from any particular wine. So... And the, the, the southern area, of course, is is quite wide. And, of course, part of the influence on, on that is going to be the Mediterranean. And uh, there, there you, you go from Madrid to the Casa del Sol, which is where I was, uh, Andalusia, uh, Malaga to Cadiz. In fact, uh, we actually took a bus from uh, that area to go across the, to take the ferry across from Gibraltar. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. And uh, that was that was quite amazing. Anyway, we, we had a really good time there. And uh, and of course, like most places, it was the people that really impressed us the most. They were wonderful, generous, fun-loving. Uh, we had a great time there. In fact, if you have a chance to go, do it. Um, okay. And then the Spanish islands. We can't forget the, the islands because they they also are growing a lot of red grapes. So the Mallorca, which is right off the Spanish coast, uh, very near Catalonia. Uh, and, and there they have the Monte Negro and the Calette. And uh, those are two I've never tried either. 
Uh, so negro, of course, is one of the words used for a black grape. Right. We normally think of them as red grapes. Most of them are actually black grapes. Right. You know, very, yeah. very dark color. Anyway, and then the Canary Islands, uh, another fascinating area. So this is off the Western Sahara. It's way, long way away from Spain. You say, well, how'd they do this? Well, they got there first and colonized it, obviously. <laughs> they say, hey, we, this is a, a good stopping off place before we go to the to the Caribbean. I so. remember sailing through the Strait of Gibraltar there, and I, and I, I believe the Canaries are still a good one or two days sail from the, mm-hmm. from the Strait of Gibraltar. That is true. So the uh, a couple of grapes they have there are the the Listan Negro and the Listan Prieto. So these are red wine grapes. The Listan Prieto is also known as the mission grape in the U.S. And so that, and in fact, they basically established that with DNA t- uh, typing. And so both California and New Mexico, of course, here in New Mexico, we were doing the mission grape 140 years before the Californians were doing it. Uh-huh. So, yeah, this is the... This is the, the first place where where the European grapes, uh, what we call the Vitus vinifera, were successfully grown. So there's that. Satisfying those first, those first, uh, the first clergy that were the, uh, as you say in your book, the the first wine critics. Right. Exactly. Well, yeah, they, they didn't want to scare up their parishioners with some really bad wine. Right, yeah. <laughs> so, this is why we get them here is they, they want the wine for the. And, well, anyway, uh, so the um, and another interesting thing is is uh, it's believed that the variety cultivated in New Mexico came from the Canary Islands. So that's something we can really, uh, really work on and, and, and really appreciate. So uh, little known fact in the Canary Islands. There are no canaries. No kidding. And in the Virgin Islands, same thing. No canaries there no either. No canaries. <laughs> <laughs> I had to. I had to do that one on you, Eric. Sorry. All right. I'll <laughs> I, take it. I, I did that with, with Kevin before. You uh, know, about a year ago when we did this, his eyes got really big. He's, what is he going to say next? <laughs> oh. <man>. Anyway, <laughs> so the the Spanish uh, wine classifications. Uh, the one you'll see uh, very seldom is Vino de Pago, and that is basically a single vineyard wine. But they're actually establishing that much more than, than they did. They're really emphasizing it more. There's about 15 of those. Next qual- quality category is the DOC, lowercase a, also known as the DOQ, all uppercase. And this is the dimension of quality. Uh, b- basically, it's, it's a qualified uh dimension of origin so it's the highest most rigorous standard they have only two places currently are are allowed to uh, carry that one is the rioja which is where we are and the other is the priorat region in uh, catalonia so that 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 may expand later but at that point those are the two biggies after that it's the do or or dimension of origin as we said and there's 79 of these defined areas and then the other category is the IGP. Uh, it's, it's a lower standard, but a, a, a covers wide, larger uh, areas, but it also permits a number of other types of grapes. So while, while they, they may say you can't do a, a uh, cab if, if you're doing a Rioja, uh, unless you want to call it an IGP, uh, you can, in, in some areas, it actually makes sense. And a lot of the, a lot of the French grapes grow just great in, in uh in, in uh, Spain, as you would expect, since a lot of them originally came from Spain. From uh, Spain, so there's that. Uh, La Rioja. So this is again is a DOCA, uh, first one to receive that classification. And so these are grapes grown in the autonomous communities of La Rioja and Navarra and the Basque province of Alava. And uh, that is. Uh, I haven't actually had a chance to try one of the wines from there, but that that would be interesting to see the Basque approach to it. I and see. Of course, I think I see it in our future. Yeah, it could be. And of course, uh, so it's further subdivided into three distinct areas. Uh, this is important because a lot of the wines are going to come from just one of these, typically. Um, and of course, you're going to see more of that as time goes on. So, if if I was if you were looking at the map, there's this there's that huge. Ebro River that goes right through the center of it, and the the, the most north uh, northwestern part is the Rioja Alto area, as you might guess. 
uh, that is the highest elevation area. And it's all pretty much, uh, if you will, to the south of the, the river. The only part that's really consistently north of the river is the Rioja Alavesa. And then the, the final area, the Rioja Oriental, uh, which used to be called the Rioja Baja, is larger than all both of those combined. That's a really big area. And the other interesting thing is is there's uh, there's a lot of tributaries that come off of that main river, flowing f- flowing south uh, southwest, and all of those have formed valleys. And in each of those valleys, there are distinct areas again with different uh, qualities and types of fruit. So uh, it's a it's a really big area with a lot of variation in the type of of uh, grapes you're going to get there and the type of wines you're going to get. So, very fascinating area. The uh, just basically the highest elevation, Alta, mostly known for an old world style. In fact, the first ones I tried uh, was very much old world style, the Grand Reserva. Do you? Oh, okay, that was the first one you tried, huh? Yeah, and it's stu- and it stuck with you all this time. It it did. Okay. In fact, I can still taste my mouth now. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the uh, Rioja Alavesa is usually fuller body and higher acidity. Uh, poor soil conditions, uh, so they, they have a very low wine density uh, with large spacing to re- reduce the competition for the nutrients of the soil. So again, when you have less of the nutrients, you don't want to really make a dense uh, vineyard uh, because that's obviously going to degrade the quality of the fruit. And then finally, the Rioja Oriental, uh, that this area is, is also influenced by the Mediterranean. So while the other areas might get more of an influence of the Atlantic, this much broader area, which almost actually the, the tip of it connects with uh, Aragon, uh, which is also very, very much in, in the Mediterranean climate. So that whole area there, it temperatures get about 95 degrees in the, in the summertime. And uh, some of the, the wines, uh, because they have a long growing season, can get up to up to 18%. Which I think is a little bit much. Uh, uh, yeah, well, I was going to say wine doesn't get much stronger than that, is it? No, no, that's as it's strong about as, as high can, as it gets. The, the 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 yeast dies after that. The the, the yeast can't produce anymore, so uh, you don't want to really get that crazy if you can avoid it. Obviously, uh, so the uh, seven valleys, like, like I said, I'm I'm only going to focus on on one area here. I don't want to cover all that stuff because. They don't really care. And uh, so, but I do want to talk about the aging requirements, and I'll talk specifically about the two vineyards that this particular wine came from. Because, uh, again, the, the Baron de Levy, uh, it's a really impressive winery. I'll tell you that right up the bat. And uh, they, they uh, really cover a lot of good detail on their, their, their wines, so you have a good idea of what to expect, where the grapes were sourced from, and and what the resulting wine might be like. And of course, part of it is is the the, uh, mission that they took over, uh, which I'll talk about in a little bit. Anyway, so if you are really uh, curious about this in detail, I would recommend you check the Wine Folly, the Seven Valleys of the Rioja Wine Region, which is really well done. It really goes into each detail, each valley, uh, areas that are better versus others. Uh, but, you know, it's mostly local people that are going to be aware of, of all of these. And uh, so move, moving forward, uh, we may get more information on it, which gives us better uh, decisions on what kind of wines we want. So that's all, and it's still an evolving thing. And I think we mentioned before about, I'm, I know we've mentioned several times before about the aging conditions. And of course, this is an important component of it. Uh, the aging, of course, uh, for a red wine in particular, but also for white wines, um, is really uh, is really speaking to the quality of, of the wines. And most wines uh, can benefit from at least five years of, of e- either at least a year in, in a barrel and three or four years in a bottle to, to really show up their best potential. Some of them in the Bordeaux area, they, they say it's a sin to drink one before 10 years. Oh, boy. Yeah. I've sinned. I can tell you I've sinned, but you know it's just the way I am. Anyway, uh, so the Crianza is two years of aging total. Uh, red is what one year in oak. Rosé is white six months. Okay, the Reserva, and of course this one is a Reserva, 
is is at least three years aging. Uh, what one year oak, six months in the bottle is the minimum. So obviously, if you only did six in the uh, six in the bottle, then you would have to do two and a half in the oak. So they're, they're, in other words, they'll give you some ver- some variability. This one I believe was eighteen months in the barrel. Um, if I look at the the text sheet, I love when I have text sheets because I can I really get more information on it and uh, see if I can find anything on that. Uh, Twenty months aging in American oak cask. Okay, so th- this one is and that's good information to note. 20 months, that's a, a, a substantial amount of time in oak, and it's American oak, which means it's going to be a little bit more aggressive. Uh, so you're going to get more of the vanilla and dill aspects that occur in um, American oak than you would in some of the continental oaks. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that, a lot of people don't realize how much flavoring comes from the oak, as, as well as you know, what we call the, the fancy word is the oxidative coupling, which is basically allowing a little bit of air to get into it, just enough to allow it to gracefully age. Now, every wine from that region is going to get aged in oak. There's none that goes straight to the bottle. Uh, not if it's if it's a, a Carianza Reserva or a Grand Reserva. Okay. If it's a Jovan, uh, J O V E N. How would you pronounce that? A uh, Jovan. Oh, oh, a uh, Joven maybe. Yeah. If it's Spain. Ho- Joven means that young. It, it didn't spend any time in oak. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. J O V E N. Okay. So, so that that's. But I, I don't do anything if it's not a Crianza. Uh, I, I want it to spend some time in oak. All I mean, right. that really that, that, that really makes the wines that I, I love and, and most people. So uh, that's what you do. Okay. And so, so this particular reserva then did 20 months in oak. It's a 16, so obviously it's had more uh, plenty of time in the bottle. And uh, it is quite a wonderful, elegant wine. Uh, really deep purple color. I, I mean, this was screaming purple. <laughs> really dark, rich color. Um, and uh, very dense, fourteen and a half percent alcohol, so and nicely balanced, um, and the the fruit is de- is dense and really expressive. Um, it has an, a nice finish. I mean, it's wow, and it's of course it's still opening up and getting better all the time. So, did you notice any difference between what you tried right out of the bottle and then when you tried some later after I? Did a double decant? Definitely. I definitely did. I was just smelling it at first, but then my first taste was still different than yeah. than the way it tastes now. You have that that few minutes of opening up really makes a difference. Mm-hmm. And coming up to temperature. Yeah. It, it, if you can possibly do it out there, Ooh. give your give your wines a little time to open up. Yeah, you get more you get more out of it. It's it's the way I express it. It's just like a flower opening. The rose, when it's just all tightly closed, is nice, but it's nothing like a fully rose. And it's the same thing with wine. Uh, and then lastly, the Grand Reserva. And, of course, these are five years aging, at least two years in, in barrel, and at least two in the bottle. So you can play that any, any way you want. And uh, so the, these are really great quality. Now, there have been a couple of additions to the rules and regulation for that. One is they now have a Grand Añada. This is for sparkling wines uh, It's that require three years entourage, okay? That basically means that it's going to be sitting in the leaves. Uh, a- a- after the wine is fermented, you're going to have the, the spent yeast cells in the bottom. This is something we do with Chardonnay and a few other wines. So you, so the more time you leave it there, the more the richer it gets, the more complex, uh, the more dense the wine becomes. So that's basically saying if, it, if it's that, it's indicating a very high-quality uh, sparkling wine, very much like like a, a champagne, and that's the Grand Añada. Right? Grand Añada. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So the other rules get a little more complicated. Um, I'll just try to summarize these if I if I can. So basically, if if you recall when we're in Burgundy, uh, we, we 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 talk about the, the the fact that we have clamats. Okay, and these are plots of land or vineyards. And they're classified differently, right? So you have the the uh, premiers and and the uh, and the grand, and those, of course, are identifying high quality. Now they aren't doing the same thing here exactly, but they are identifying different areas or at least villages or communes uh, that could then identify because if if they think they they're expressing a really great quality fruit, um, then they can put their name on it. 
Of course, the problem with this is, well, that's fine. It says, we, we think we do really great stuff. We want to put the village name on it. Uh, a lot of U.S. consumers are going to be like, where the heck is this place? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, right. So it's, it's not going to have the same relevance. So I, I see this evolving very slowly over time. Um, and don't hold your breath on it. But it, it is something you're going to see more of. There's about 145. Uh, this is what, what they call them are a village or a municipality. And they call it a municipio. And so there's 145 of these. Good luck trying to remember all of those, right? Yeah, it's like, uh, yeah, no, I don't think so. Uh, they can, uh, the other thing was, uh, as you recall, with the rosé wines becoming a lot more popular, uh, and particularly the ones from Provence, uh, uh, doing a very high acidity, very little extraction, uh, the rosados uh, from this area uh, had, to do, had, had to do more time on, on the skins. Uh, and develop a darker, richer color. That's kind of what they wanted their rosés to be. But if you're competing on the world market, uh, it won't be as attractive as some people. A lot are looking for something lighter. So they, they now have the option of being able to do it closer to what would be a Provence style. And again, a lot of the same kind of grapes. The, the Grenache grape is the Grenache grape. That's one of the principal ones in Provence as well. So we can see where, where this could, could be really invaluable. Well, Jim, I gotta, I gotta interrupt here for a second. Maybe, Please do. <laughs> so maybe you can take a swig while I'm telling you this, but I don't know if you remember just now that I didn't get much tannins in my first taste, mm. but my third or fourth taste, I'm getting, I'm getting tannins like crazy, and I'm get, I, it almost tasted sweet. It almost tasted like sweet raspberry. Mm. Okay, yeah, that, that's what you're picking up in it. Yes. Yep. Oh, yeah. It just keeps, it keeps opening up, mm. amazingly. Oh, it's definitely got some black cherry and and, and raspberry, even uh, black raspberry uh-huh. in it, which is re- really nice. Yeah, the tannins are still there. Again, when you open a wine first, the tannins are going to be right in your face. I mean, I mean they're, they're they're more expressive as they integrate back into the wine. Uh, they they usually soften, and the and and the entire wine is going to the mouthfeel is going to be better. But that that takes a while. When we do a double decant, what we do is we first. Uh, use a venturi, uh, which is a, a, a device to agitate the wine and draw more air into it. So you use that to put it into a, a, a carafe, and then you pour it back into the wine bottle because um, we like it in its wine bottle. And so you're basically doing what we call a double decant. So that gives you at least a half hour, 45 minutes of breathing time. If in the Best of all possible words, I would set it up with an hour and a half. Uh-huh. Uh, for some wine judgings, they don't uh, they don't taste them until after two or three hours. Can you get a decent decent aerate with just uh, without a venturi? Uh, you you can. The, well, there's other devices you can use that provide some agitation. But the the one thing about that mechanism, and there's more than one that have done it. I think venturi uh, was a venturi was the first ones that actually came up with the idea. But I've seen a number on the market. And there's some that are a little gentler that I've sometimes used if I'm using a Pinot Noir. Uh-huh. I might use one of those because okay. you know Pinot is usually a lot lighter tannins, so I don't like to aggressively do that with some of them. But that's a matter of personal taste. But just going straight from a bottled into a carafe and back that that might not be enough aeration. No, but it will give you some. Okay, it absolutely will do some. In fact, some people do what they call a flash decant, uh-huh. where they just upend the bottle and put it all the way into the carafe uh-huh. okay so that is it's gonna it's gonna agitate it coming on the neck of the bottle and it will it will get some there however don't do that with unfiltered wines why is uh, that? oh yeah you yeah get the sediment yeah ex- exactly yeah most are, are are not these days but some are on fine and unfiltered uh because they they believe they're losing some of the flavor of the wine, and so they don't want that. I've, I've had some wonderful zins that were done that way from uh, Basantano uh-huh. uh, in uh, in the Pasarobas area that I have said were some of my favorites. Yeah, they were a bit on the chewy side. Yeah, you didn't get a, you weren't going to see clear light through the, the the wine, but boy, were they good. Hmm. Uh, but uh, when 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 they sold the place, they went away from that. So. It's 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 not unusual to see some, but it's still fairly rare to see one that's on fine, unfiltered. Because right. you know when people look at it, they say, "Why is my wine muddy?" Right. And so that's part of the reason for that. So based on all all this, so you have the Rioja Dio. Uh, you also have 
the DOC, the DOCAs, and those go into zonas. Uh, so that means it's either Rioja Alta, Alavesa, or Oriental. Okay, so they could identify by saying all the grapes came from one of those areas. And in fact, in the case of the Baron de Levy, they all did come from the from two vineyards in the in the Oriental area. Uh, the the other thing is the municipios or village ones, and again, these can be. Uh, th- this is going to be kind of they're trying to implement things like they did in Burgundy, um, and it time will tell about that. So, for the most part, you're not going to see that. And then the last classification, uh, Vinedo Singular. <laughs> uh, this is a unique vineyard with very strict requirements. Minimum vineyard age, 35 years, all hand harvested, yields 20% less than qualified for the Rioja, vineyard under ownership at least 10 contiguous years. And the vineyard has to be in the same area as the winery. Mm-hmm. You know, so, again, that's going to share the best quality, but... Uh, you know, you, but nonetheless, uh, don't expect to see any of those coming out anytime soon. Okay, so the red grapes, as we already mentioned, the Rioja, Tempranillo, Carnacha, Graciano, and Masuelo are the, the, the ones you'll typically encounter. So just to give you a brief overview of those, particularly the Tempranillo, because this one is 100% Tempranillo wine. Again, if everything you need is is uh, available in one grape or one grape grown in two different areas as it is here. You know, you're still doing blending, even though it's the same grape. The two different vineyards are gonna deliver different things. You can combine them in whatever percentage is gonna yield what you think is a fabulous wine. And that's what we got here. So the Tempranillo um, has flavors of cherry, plum, tomato, or tomato. Uh, that, that, I've, I've gotten tomato in, in different wines and dried fig and the tertiary flavors. Okay, tertiary is another nice term. Uh, that, that's why I italicized it. Tertiary means this is what came from the processing, such as the type of yeast you used, the type of, of conveyance you did it in, and the amount of time you did skin extraction, plus the oak that it went in. Okay, so tertiary flavors of cedar, Leather, tobacco, vanilla, dill, and cloves. Guess what that all comes from? The oak. Aha, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I would be really shocked if I had a, a grape that wasn't in oak and I got dill flavors out of it. It'd be like, whoa, how'd that happen? But anyway, and so, uh, again, a lot, a lot of American oak, that this particular one, as we said, was done 100% in American oak for 20 months. So, obviously, there's a lot of impression from that. So, part of what we get in the tannin, obviously, is from the oak as well as from the, from the, the wine itself. Now, can you tell from the flavor if this is French or American oak? Some people can. Uh-huh. Uh, and again, it's part of what it expresses. Uh, for instance, as, as I said, the American oak is usually more aggressive. And it depends on the way they did it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want to get into a lot of detail on, on that, but basically, they uh, they they uh, kiln dried instead of air dried the wood. Mm-hmm. In in Europe, most of the woods are air dried, which mm-hmm. takes years. Mm-hmm. So it's part of the reason why they're more expensive. Mm-hmm. But it also means w- w- you get a tighter grain, uh, so it's less expressive than a American oak. Oh, okay, see. so but of course the Spanish like the expression that they get from it. Mm-hmm. So you know. It, it depends. And, yeah, some people can tell you even, well, let's see. Yeah, th- this is from uh, this, this is from a Lemassan. Uh, it's probably from the southern part, and it's probably from the north side of the tree. Hmm. That's too much information. <laughs> really, it's like, okay, fine. Glad glad you know that. But you win, huh? Yeah, you, you win. Exactly. <laughs> Garnacha. Uh, the Grenache. I, I always preferred the Spanish uh, pronunciation of it. Garnacha. Garnacha. Because that is that kind of grape, right? So it's it's a very widely planted grape, one of the most widely planted in the world, of course. It ripens late, so it needs a lot of hot, dry conditions. Well, guess where it's from? Spain. Yes, so that works out just great. Very strong wood canopy, highly resistant to winds, which the Mistral, for instance, in Rhone, where it's, it's grown, that's a, a big benefit of the grape. But the in the the, the um, Cantabrian Mountains shield some of the wind from that. And uh, flavors are very spicy, uh, red berry flavors, raspberry, strawberry, 
soft on the palate usually. Uh, it doesn't have a, a high uh, acidity, but it has a very high alcohol content. And, and when it gets aged, when it gets really aged, like the ones in the Priorat, uh, they get almost tarry. They're like, whew, just really intense wines. Uh, wonderful. Mazuelo. Um, the Mazuelo grape is also known as the Carneña. In fact, uh, when we were in Aragon, that's actually one of their uh, DOs is called Carneña. And it's also called Carinon. And about, there's got several different names for it. It used to be just a blending grape at one time, but over time, as interesting like a lot of things, when you, the vineyards age more, you say, wow, this is tasting a lot better than I remember it. When it was young, it was kind of rough and rough hoon, but now as the, as the vine ages and we get less pr- production, we're, we're getting much more savory notes. It's really a much nicer wine. And so the languedoc Roucheon uh, area in particular really in, uh, uh, plants a lot of these grapes. In fact, the first time I ever had it was uh, a, a winery in not too far from uh, where, where I lived in Las Gatas. And uh, he did ex- he did a lot of uh, single uh, vineyard Carignan, which at, and at that time I never heard of the grape, but mm-hmm. I tried some of his wines. And they are a bit on the rustic side, but I really liked them. So really interesting grape. Um, and what makes it rustic? Uh, rustic is, is, is the character that you get from it. Uh, it's it's going to be more tannic, for one thing, uh, usually higher in alcohol. And there's also brambly-like fruits, things are going on in it that, that can also give it that, that kind of feeling. Right. Um, let's see. Uh, oh, yeah, Wine Valley's take on it is it's fruit-forward, red fruit, and baking spice flavors, along with subtle notes of umami. Uh, umami make it a perfect food wine. Mm-hmm. So Sounds good to me. And then Graciano. Uh, I've actually had a couple of 100% Graciano uh, wines from Rioja. I love them. I love this grape. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a much more difficult grape to grow, which is why you see less of it. Um, but everyone I've seen, I've really enjoyed it. It's got, it's, it, it's hard to describe, but it's kind of like, like, like a cab to a Syrah. So it's a Spanish grape grown primarily in the Rioja. Very low low yield per producer, uh, harvested in late October. So late harvesting, which is the other thing. Uh, very deep color, strong aroma, ability to age well. It thrives in the, in the warm climates like we have here. It's also known as Moristel, not Monastrel. <laughs> See how confusing these things can be uh, in, in France and Xerxes in the U.S. And I've never heard it called that. But anyway, mm. but the Verdad winery, winemaker Luisa Sawyer Lindquist, makes an awesome Graciano. One of our local uh, wineries here, uh, Vera Wines, which is an excellent one. Um, they, uh, they, they source some of their uh, Graciano wine from there. That's one of the grapes that is blended together. But uh, Luisa also does it as a single varietal. And after I tasted it, and we did some barrel tasting. I love doing barrel tasting. And I tried that, I said, oh yeah, I need a bottle of that. I should have gotten five, but anyway. Um, so that's the kind of the, the ones you want. Interesting thing, um, the, uh, there's been a lot more interest in this grape of, of late because of its uh, low yield and the and fact that it's subject to downy mildew, which is not easy. Very high maintenance grape. But in 1999, the Spanish government offered subsidies to any vintner that would grow the grape. And that's helped because I'm now seeing a couple of single varietal Graciano's and uh, and it's also great for blending in, in other ones. So, if if you see any of those on a shelf so, so somewhere from Rioja, grab it. I think you'll be really impressed. Okay, but the one we're doing here is the Baron de Levy Rioja Reserva, 2016, 14 and a half percent alcohol, 19.99 total wine. That's a really good price for this wine, friends. Let me tell you. So uh, they're they're. Loc- they're, uh, the, the, where they are located, they're housed in a, in a centuries-old monastery where the monks made wine more than 500 years ago, okay? And uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's quite amazing. The, they, they act, the Baron de Levy uh, founded it in 1985, uh, and it is, um, is vineyard-focused winery inspired by the Madoc Chateau. So... They're, in other words, they want to do these wines they, they, the way they do, would in the Bordeaux region. And 
uh, the winery history is really fascinating. Check this out. 1548, uh, the Count of Equia, uh, a nobleman from the Navarra, built a castle fortress and a, a thousand hectares uh, estate on his property. Um, and in 1568, the fortress and estate became the property of the Benedictine Order. Excellent. The famous Benedictine Order. We, we know about them. They're, they, they were they, they If they touch any grapes, they're going to make great ones out of it. Anyway, so uh, they, they uh, took it over and uh, in exchange, and the, um, they, they used the logistical asset to breed wool-producing sheep and make wine and spirits. So God bless them. Yeah. They didn't make Benedictine, though. Oh what? Oh really? Where no. where is that from? Uh, that that um, we we don't know. They 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 put that name on it. The ones who produced the Benedictine, but uh-huh. it wasn't done by Benedictine monks. Interesting. But of course, they never correct that misconception. Right. Yeah. Because a lot of people say, "Ooh, wow, yeah." Anyway, they don't mind taking credit, huh? Absolutely not. Not if it's if it increases our sales. Uh, anyway, and and of course, you had a period of of turmoil between the church and the state. That was. A lot of Spain's history had dealt with things like that. And uh, so the estate was confiscated. And in 1839, General Martin uh, Zerbano took possession as a reward for his distinguished war service. Okay. I'm glad someone actually profited from the war service. <laughs> right. uh, so and this, I love this part. In 1844, however, Zerbano wagered and lost all his lands in a historic card game. That must have been one heck of a card game. Oh, boy. <laughs> And it was redeemed by the administrator, Cayo Moro. In 1880, him and his family bought the estate from Cayo Moro, uh, her, his widow. And uh, so they've been doing it for several generations. And uh, as, and the, like I say, from that, it was picked up again by the Baron de Levy in, in, uh, in when I say 1985. So that's kind of the history of it. In uh, 2000, Gonzalez Rodriguez was recruited as a chief winemaker, and he encouraged the plantation of new indigenous grape varieties, uh, which I've seen some of. So they won two international wine spirit competitions and was uh, labeled the Spanish Wine Producer of the Year in 2004. Excellent. So that's that's a, a good credit to have. The second largest aging cellar in the world was completed in 2018, holds 30,000 casks. Now there would be some serious barrel tasting. Wow! <laughs> so it's like oh, we only have two. We only have uh, two two thousand five to go. Oh, okay. Oh. Wow. <laughs> that I, I've seen pictures of it. That is immense. It is just like gigantic. Anyway, so you know, pretty impressive place, right? In two thousand nineteen, Pablo Tascan, one of Spain's young and upcoming winemakers, joined Baron Levy as their technical director to work alongside of Gonzalez Rodriguez. So that's where we currently are now. So they. Uh, this particular wine is man- the manual harvesting, uh, a combination of manual harvesting, hand harvesting, and hand sorting. There are 1.8 million kilograms of grapes every vintage. That's a lot of sorting. Wow. <laughs> a lot of sorting. Has has over 600 hectares. That's 1,482 acres, if you can't do the math. And uh, in all the sub-regions or all in the... In, in the of uh, Rioja Oriental region. So this wine is made using Tempranillo grape from two vineyards. Um, the ones is uh, located in Mandavia and Los Amendros. And they gave details. You know, that there was a lot of wonderful stuff on the, on the, the um, in fact, let me give you that. It's www.barondeley.com. Check it out. You'll be really impressed. It's, it's fascinating to read good they have good videos and and really give you uh, part of the videos show you each vineyard and you know aerial views of it cool which is yeah i always love that so the the uh real oriental town madavia uh, 164 hectares altitude is 400 meters climate is mostly mediterranean continental the soils are alluvial uh, calcaceras they have tempranillo granachano and maturana are the ones uh so, so the con- contemporary wines with a great fruit concentration. And boy, do you get that fruit concentration? It's just like, wow, how did you pack that much fruit in that glass? It's, it's really... It's miraculous. Yeah. And then the other one is the town is uh, 
Osejo, and that's 300 hectares, which makes it the largest estate in Rioja. Hmm. 300 hectares, two and a half times that. That's a lot of, that's altitude 450. Again, the climate Mediterranean, soils are, are very similar. Uh, Tempranillo, Garnacha Tinta, Graciano, uh, Maturana uh, Tinta, again, Tinta means uh, red or black, Garnacha, uh, Garnacha Blanca, and even a little Sauvignon Blanc. Um, fresh, uh, the characteristics are fresh wines with balanced alcohol, color, and body. So they're basically blending those two to come up with this wonderful wine that we are enjoying, and we are enjoying it a lot here, just so you know. So, this actually gives a little time. We actually talk about a lot of visuals here, but now we're going to look at it, visuals from the other standpoint. Okay. And this is a, another article from uh, that that I picked up from the Wine Scholar Guild. Uh, I've been a member in the past. I'm probably going to re- rejoin. Uh, they have some of the best educational stuff on wine anywhere. They're, they're really impressive. But this was an article that caught my – well, the title did – on the predatory influence of our eyes oh, on the taste right, of wine. Right, okay. Yeah. I'm going like, what? What does that mean? Okay. So anyway, this was uh, th- this was uh, written by French neuroscientist uh, Gabriel Laposse, um, and uh, so he was. Uh, what he is intimates by the term predatory is is what drew me obviously to the article. Um, I mentioned me before about the fact that the wine requires all of our senses, right? So when we're we're looking at it, uh, so we have the visual, and then we have the the olfactory, so we're smelling it, and then we have the sense of touch because we got the mouthfeel and everything about that, and we sense a lot through through that, and and uh, along with that, we also have the, um, and yeah, so you got sight, smell, all those, and in fact, if you were popping a cork, we might even say auditory. So all those are right out there. What he's basically saying. Is, is that, uh, and one of the things he s- quotes is, wine is one of the most complex sensory objects we put in our mouths. Right. Okay, which is absolutely true. And don't forget about the sound of, the, of your sparkling wine, right? Oh yeah, the sparkling wines are always like that. So he says, uh, so he says seeing is, is not always believing. In the past, experiments have been done uh, using, like, so they, they would take a tasteless dye, red dye, put it into a white wine. Okay, so it, it looks red, but it's really white. That sounds criminal. Well, the reason they're doing it as an experiment to see if your eyes will deceive you. And uh-huh. indeed, everyone came up with red Every wine time. characteristics, uh-huh. even Every though it was time. a white wine. So that was one of the, the, the reasons for it. Another one that, that I, I mentioned is Nebbiola. Uh-huh. The, uh, Nebbiola is a very light-skinned grape. The, the colors you get from it is very light, but it has one, uh, one heck of a tannic... Um, jackhammer element to it right so it's like you, you think it's going to be like a pinot noir and you go like oh no this is nothing like a pinot noir so again your eyes have made you assume one thing and you did the other and so just quoting from him now uh compared to a painting or a piece of music uh this sums up almost all of our senses simultaneously it sets off fireworks in the form of electrical activity in multiple regions of the brain it becomes a real challenge for our nerve cells to process such a barrage of information rushing at the same time through our different sensory channels. Okay. However, the brain works hard and quick to select, filter, prioritize, and determine the relevancy of such information in spite of such a sensory complex framework. Yeah, and we have, our brains are marvelous that way. It says, but one of the things he's mentioned is not all of our senses have the same priority. So again, we are really visual creatures. We're aware of that. That's our first impression that everything comes from the visual. But he was showing some uh, uh, some examples of brain activity based on the activation of different senses, okay? Oh, okay. And so if you have the visual sense, it, acts, it excites over 16% of the brain. If you're doing olfactory, 1%. Think about that about the impact of this the sense and you, and you so what he's saying is is we have to be aware of that 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 can be a problem uh, so that basically this translates to is the visual clues can mislead can mislead as well as direct and uh, we, we we read it based on the clues in the wine based on color intensity and that can bias what we think we actually taste 
even though it's 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 not the same thing. So uh, some some sommeliers, and I'm going to probably be doing this more myself, close their eyes while focusing on the smell or the taste of the wine. Again, when you're doing that, you're shutting off the visual, which is going to overpower everything else, and now you're just focusing just on that. And of course, we we know people that are are blind; their sense of smell and taste are are much better because they are, that's what they are focusing right. on. So. What what the, he's talking about is is trying to come come back with some some balance, so so this uh, th- this can refocus the brain on taste elements and the retronasal smell via the back pathway connections uh, versus the orthonasal. Okay, so what we're talking about here because you know, new terms for you, right? So the the uh, retronasal is. When you're si- sipping any wine, as maybe you you probably remember this anytime you had a cold and you don't taste anything, well, there's two places that we're getting smell. One's one is from the nose, but also there's two uh, two holes in the roof of our, our mouth, and and those are where we sense the taste again. So you're, that's what we call the retro uh, part of it, and that's a big part of it because that's a big part of the what you're tasting in the wine. Um, so. So when we perform our deductive tasting method, uh, which we do, it's it's always it's always the eye to nose to mouth, that's the, the the sequence we always follow, and we've been trained to do that for a long time too. So, so I, I would figure that's the way it should be. Uh, what he's saying is when performing our deductive tasting method of eyes nose mouth temporal sequence, all the numerous and dynamic sensations in the mouth, gustatory, tactile, trigeminal retronasal are thus biased and contaminated by the preceding events or at least relegated to the back row for just or for just a confirmation of the first picture we had from the color okay so so this is called a confirmation bias it's a well-known cognitive bias that we we know from brain theory Uh, it's it's kind of a hardwired and subconscious thought mechanism that automatically leads the brain to reinforce more information that confirms pre-existing beliefs. So your mouth can really cover three areas, right? You can cover the smell, the taste, and the texture just from just from your mouth. Yeah. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Right. <laughs> You're good. Okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll be good after this glass. Okay. No, go ahead. Close your eyes after this next taste. Yeah, oh, I, I'm definitely closing my eyes. Uh, so, oh. Anyway, so what Gabriella is suggesting that this final stage deserves more than to confirm in the mouth the aromas that we identified in the nose. One option is to try to really taste blind, uh, going from mouth to nose to visual. Uh, he mentions that such a method has been the practice of professional gourmets in the 15th and 16th centuries who were in charge of ensuring the origin of their wines. They closed their eyes. They didn't look at the color. They just uh, sampled and tasted it without that. So, Oh, I'm going to do that more often now. Yeah. So basically, what we're what we're saying is is kind of a summary. Well, I don't see this becoming a popular pastime. It does alert us to reading too much into what we see and allow our taste of the wine to be more than a confirmation of the other senses. Mm-hmm. So, more food for thought for you out there, friends. So, it's a uh, so uh, again the wine we have here is the Baron de Levy Reserva, uh, 2016, and there was still a generous amount over at Total Wines. Uh, if you want to check that out, I think you'll really in- enjoy it. It's oh. a, it's quite a marvelous wine, as most wines from the Rioja are. We know, listening to us now, that you we know you want to go out and try it now, or at least try something. S- start with that. Start with that olfactory sense. Never mind about how it looks, right? Just mm-hmm. go for, go for the smell, go for the taste and texture yep. in the mouth. Yep. I would check to make sure there's no cork floating at first. Well, that's, that's true. That's okay. Coming that's a, from that, that, that might be one one thing you might want to check for. Just I'm not going to really concentrate. I'm just going to notice no cork floating there. Or, okay. I'm or good. have someone someone you trust pour it for you. Huh? Right. Yeah. You you could actually be led there blind. So yeah, as, as we said, blind tasting was not where you actually were a blindfold, but in this case, it might be something to try. Uh, and 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 j- just see if you get a different reaction to it. It sounds or, fun to me. You could probably set something up actually, where you had two different wines, and you tried one vi- visually all the way through, and then the other one you tried where you didn't see it, and then you tasted, and then you went back to the visual was the last thing you looked at. That's that's the science that I'm into right there. But if when you finally looked at it, if it was green, 
I'd feel like someone was putting something <laughs> over on you. So just be aware of that. <laughs> right. Yeah, beware. Beware the food dyes. Yeah, but you have to really trust people with, with things like that. But anyway, it, it's just another thing to be aware of, uh, again, how marvelous the brain is and how much complexity there is in wine and how we perceive it. And again, that's that, that part of the lesson is re- relevant to, to all of us is the more you focus on the wine, the, whether you focus visually or focus on, on the taste and the aroma, um, the more benefit you get out of it, the more you're training your own palate, the, the, the sharper your palate becomes, the, the, the more enjoyment you get out of it, the more pleasure from every sip. And that's what we want. We want you to keep enjoying and each sip just, just enhancing that whole wonderful thing we call wine tasting. So, any final thoughts? Uh, final thoughts. Well, you know, uh, to be honest, uh, I think this we've tried one wine this afternoon, and it tastes different almost at every every sip that I take. Oh yeah, it's um right right now it's it, it's yeah it's really opened up more. You probably notice the tannins are there, but they're 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 more in the background. Yeah, it's definitely gone more back in in the yeah. background. Yeah, they're, they're, they're still there. And again, part of the reason for that is you rub your tongue over the roof of your mouth. Uh, if you did that like right at the beginning and then mm-hmm. try it now, you'd probably notice, again, that's that's tactile sensation, of course, is part of what suggests you what the tannin level is. Yeah, I did. I, you know, that first sip, I didn't really get much. I was a little disappointed. I don't know mm-hmm. if that registered with you, but but as it's opened up, oh, there's, there's plenty of wonderful tannins and... I mean, I don't know how else to describe it, but it is, it's totally balanced. And mm-hmm. I've come to expect that from the wines you bring, Jim. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, that's, that's what we want. You know, this has got some, we haven't talked about the Christmas, but it's got good acidity in as well. And again, that gives you part of the liveliness or the lift in a wine. When they, when they say this wine had lift, they basically mean it had good acidic background bone to it. That really just, you know, if, if you have one that has very little acidity, it's the, the wines become really flabby and they just aren't expressive and they aren't as enjoyable. So that's part of what we say when we say the balance. And part of it's coming in the balance is giving it enough tone to open up where the tannins are more integrated into it. And we know they're there, but they aren't in our face. Uh-huh. And so that's, that, that's part of what we're looking for when we're, when we're trying to open up a, a wine. And, and yeah, today I did something a little different too. I tasted our cheese before I had a an actual sip of the wine. I had been smelling the wine and then I took a taste of the cheese and then tasted the wine full on and it was, uh, it, it changed things a little bit. Yeah, I didn't get those tannins as much with the cheese flavor. Oh, no, you mouth. wouldn't. Uh, in fact, that's one of the reasons that's that they, typical, they offer huh? cheese. Okay. Uh, it's an old French uh, merchant saying is, is you, you taste with water, you sell with cheese. Because mm-hmm. you want to know the, the quality of wine. I, I know I did a tasting um I've done a number of tastings where they've had cheeses to go along with with the wines, mm-hmm. um, and uh, Duckhorn was one, and they they had it was wonderful Merlots, and they had cheeses paired for each one of them. But I said, well, that's great, but I'm going to taste each wine first by itself before I try it with cheese, because uh-huh. that that's going to alter it. If it was too tannic and you have cheese, you wouldn't be aware of that because it'll taste a lot more mellow. Uh, so, you know, that's that's one of the reasons that people do serve it with cheese. And then what do you use to cleanse your palate between sips of wine? Water. Just water. Is, is the that's best one. the best thing. Yeah, when we do the, the wine judging, uh, one of the things we also do is we usually have a, a little bowl of, of, uh, of uh, coffee beans. Mm-hmm. And oh. we just sniff that because yeah, that's strong that. enough that kind of neutralizes it. I've but, you know, that's that. one of the reasons why normally if you're doing tasting, you start with the white dry wines and then the dry reds and then you go to the sweet wines because otherwise it takes a little while to clear your palate and readjust to something else right. light to dark yep and palate also just over time your, your palate will adjust to the wine it's not just that the wine is opening up your palate is also adjusting to the wine uh, okay. so that's another factor to to be aware of great all right that's yep. good that's a good one good rule to remember another yes. edition you guys got too much wine left my god too much talking. Yeah. Well, I was hoping Eric would talk more. Then I could drink more. Oh, I wow, Eric. You know, there you go, Eric. I know. Eric, 
I'm going to have to Eric. train him better. I'm, that's all. I'm that's working the, on it. <laughs> the new protege <laughs> there for the Spirits of New Mexico. We appreciate everybody joining us for another fabulous week of broadcasting right here in the classic Kiva, the world-renowned KIVA AM 1600. Going to be back at full power at the end of March. Uh, we've got that. We've got our new board. we got everything all good to go. So not to mention some new uh, environs as well, which we'll be moving to. So excited about that. And Thanks, as always, for tuning in uh, to the Kiva. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Eric. Thank you all to our all of our hosts and all of our listeners uh, out there. Stay tuned for a night of live broadcasting, including Arc Midnight with John B. Wells.